0: Ryan Millsap, Chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production.
1: I'm Ryan Millsap, host of the Blackhaw Studios podcast from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm an entrepreneur, mostly by necessity because I have massive authority issues, and also by constitution as the entrepreneurial life is filled with things I love, freedom, adventure, creativity, and imagination. When I began this leg of my journey into the entertainment industry, you may find it interesting to know that my background before this was all commercial real estate. And that I built Black Hall Studios as a specialty real estate project for production giants like Disney, Sony, Warner Brothers and Universal to have a place to apply their skilled craft of production. I'm from Los Angeles, but I moved to Atlanta six years ago. I've done business all over the world and I know few places with the dynamism of Atlanta. It's a world-class city with a huge economic future as a center of commerce for a global economy. On this podcast, we get local and global And talk to people who are inspirational sensational sometimes motivational but at all times somehow tied to the ecosystem that is the culture and business of entertainment as it relates to black hall studios my guest today on the podcast created an amazing literary website because he was pissed off by a lack of respect for fine southern drinking establishments chuck reese is a southerner and that means two things to him what southerners think and what the rest of the world thinks about Southerners. William Faulkner wrote, Tell about the South. Why do they live there? Why do they live at all? Chuck got over being mad. He got bitter and created the website The Bitter Southerner. It quickly escalated beyond tales of the South's finest barkeeps and into a fabulous collection of stories about modern Southern culture. The New York Times called it a kitchen sink publication with a New Yorker profile. I'm hooked being an LA transplant to Atlanta, I want to know it all. Chuck is a fascinating guy. I know you'll love listening to him. So pour yourself some sweet tea or something stronger and get ready for tales of the bitter southerner. Welcome to the Black Hall Podcast. Today we are fortunate to have Chuck Reese, who's the publisher of the Bitter Southerner.
0: I'm the editor in chief. I'm a I'm, ah, I'm a co-founder. And I don't want that publisher's job. God Almighty.
1: No. <laughs> Chuck, welcome to the program.
0: Really glad to be here, Ryan. Thank you for inviting me. me. I got the good mic out for you. I love it. Glad you're
1: here. You know, one of the things that we started to chat about that I thought would be a, a wonderful beginning is this idea of what it means to be a southerner. And the reason I start there is that I moved to the South six years ago from Los Angeles. Well I was born in the South actually in southern Missouri. I know some Southerners consider to be the South and some people don't, but I'll tell you what
0: No we'll we'll take different. we'll take it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about that too, the Ozark. I moved to the West Coast when I was like five years old Grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona, and then I, you know, and then I spent all my adult life in California. But I moved to the South six years ago, and I don't know if Southerners would consider me to be a Southerner, even though I have pretty deep roots now own a lot of property. Consider myself consider this to be my home. So, what do I need to do to
0: become a Southerner?
1: <laughs>
0: well, uh, you know, if, if you go by what we've consistently told our readers, all you have to do is say so and I'll put it this way and and y'all might have to bleep me if you're a bleeping kind of podcast. Probably in our second year of existence and I was working on a story that I was writing about a musician from Alabama named Lee Baines the 3rd whose grandmother actually went to the same church as Bull Connor who was the Birmingham chief of police who set the dogs and fire hoses on people who were demonstrating for their their rights in Birmingham back in the, the early sixties and and he had written an album called De Reconstruction that was a very pointed look at the at southern history, and we were talking about who is a southerner and He looked at me and he said, "If you say you're a southerner, then you're a fucking southerner, and we need to hear from you." And attitude, <laughs> I love that guy. <laughs> you love his music, too, particularly if you're one of those young men who might have any uh, fond memories of Los Angeles punk rock, because that's what he sounds like. But he's Southern as all get out. And when Lee said that to me, it really helped coalesce something that we had been thinking about, because the very first question we got after we launched this thing was, okay, how do you define the South? Which states? Well, that's not so easy as you just mentioned when you look at places like Missouri, southern Missouri and the Ozarks is just as southern as the Arkansas Ozarks. You know, it's a difficult thing to do. So here's what I did that was kind of fun. I went looking for other ways to define it and I found a study that had been done by a linguistics professor somewhere who had uh researched the incidence of various words uh, county by county across the entire United States, and one of the words he studied was y'all. And if you put his findings uh, about where the highest incidence of the w- use of the word y'all is, if you put that on a map, you kind of see a y'all line. And the y'all line sort of runs. <laughs>
1: so it's like in the in Nat the line?
0: Yeah, yeah. And it runs from like the Mason Dixon line in Maryland in a long, sweeping southwesterly arc down through East Texas. So we were like, that's the South. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting. The first time I ever got invited to speak about the Bitter Southerner and why we were doing it, which was actually on our very first anniversary. Uh, and it's it's a, a group called Creative Mornings, and I put a, a slide up that had the map of the U.S. with the all line drawn on it, and I asked everyone to stand up who was not born inside that line but lived here now, and I'd say maybe a, a third of the people in the room stood up. hmm And I said do you think you'll still be here five years from now? Like, is this home? Then I left those folks standing, and I said, okay, the rest of you who were born inside the line, if you've ever left and moved back, stand up. And I was like, okay, that's who Southerners are. It's people who were born here, and have moved elsewhere, but have a tight connection with the place. There's expat Southerners everywhere. It's those who went to places like that and decided to come back. It's the ones who never left, and it's the ones like you who moved here and made it a home.
1: I love being in that definition guess I feel like this is my home. But I definitely welcome home, brother. There. Welcome. I, <laughs> I did get a big green egg recently, and so I thought that might help in my membership.
0: You're on the way. When you get an offset smoker, let me know.
1: So. <laughs> That's next. I'm gonna. Build, I'm actually gonna build one from scratch.
0: Well, there you go. There you go. I got plans galore on my hard drive, buddy. Let me know when you're getting started.
1: Oh, I cannot wait. We're gonna talk
0: about this right <laughs> now. That's fantastic. Right now, I'm running a total improvised hillbilly thing in the backyard. It's it's the COVID barbecue, and it's made out of seven cement blocks and. Uh, a piece of uh steel grating. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is genius. There's a I recently watched a uh, one of the episodes of uh Chef's Table on Netflix. I think it was the 3rd episode of the 1st season. And it was about this mm-hmm. Argentinian Argentinian chef who all he does is just cook over open fire. And he makes these big bonfires. You'd love it. I mean, the guy is amazing.
0: You know, and it's kind of funny right now as we all live through this. It's like all my discussions with my friends, especially the ones who are lucky enough to have a little bit of outdoor space around where we live, which is much more common than all my friends say who are cooped up in an apartment in New York or someplace. Where are are you right now? About four years ago, we moved out of the city to Clarkston, Georgia. Do you know much about Clarkston?
1: I don't. I live in Social Circle out by Covington.
0: Oh, okay. That's on the east side of town, right?
1: It's all, Yeah, it's halfway to Lake Oconee,
0: out the 20. I'm not that far from you. You know Decatur, right?
1: Sure, of course.
0: Okay. You ever been the DeKalb Farmer's Market? No. Oh, my God. You have to go. It's like, no matter how weird the recipe I've never not been able to find the ingredients at that place. <laughs> it's it's amazing. And it's like as big as four football fields. It's huge. And uh and I only live two miles from there, but just think about it this way, okay. You've done this a thousand times. You've driven out Ponce de Leon Avenue and into downtown Decatur, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Keep going two miles, you get to that farmers market, keep going two more miles and you're in Clarkston. I know right There's where they're right by they they Tucker. Talk- closer in to yeah. the city than Tucker. Hey. And Clarkston for the last 30 years has been part of the National Refugee Resettlement Program. So in the city of Clarkston, population 13,000, there are 75 different ethnic groups represented. Amazing. You know, it's like, okay, if you want to see what the South is becoming, ain't no better place to live than Clarkston, Georgia. You see that thing we write about all the time, which is, we always say that the culture of the South is really a gumbo. And and think about what gumbo is, okay? Gumbo was the very first dish on this continent, and it happened in New Orleans, which was the only place it could have happened then, that contained methods and ingredients from our European ancestors and then from the ancestors of enslaved people from the Caribbean and from Africa. And as every successive wave of immigrants has come in just like that dish they put their own flavors in the gumbo pot of this region's culture and what comes out of it is the flavors change you know now there's certain people down here who you know when the flavor changes they get scared to taste it but those aren't our readers (laughs) we our readers are the ones who want to taste it you know and since the virus has happened it's it's comforting to remind oneself that i can walk a few yards in either direction on my street and and talk to neighbors who endured wars and bombings and unspeakable horrors and violence and then made a life here we sort of feel like we we live in a neighborhood that's full of sources of hope
1: well, all you have to do is talk to people like that to find out how amazing this country is.
0: Exactly. I mean, that's the thing. They all want to get here. I mean, right. Th- this this was their dream. This was you know this was the place where they believed they could build the kind of life that they they dreamed of for themselves. And they fought like hell to get here. My neighbors fought like hell to get here. And there's so many have. families here that are, that are not complete because some of them didn't make it through the fight, but they're here. And the South, statistically, you know, according to the U.S. census data, and I don't really care how you define it, you know, actually the government does have an official definition for it. But no matter how you slice the data, it's the most diverse part of the country and all it has been. You know, but we've got this mythology that was created uh, after the Civil War by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, that created the whole lost cause mythology that, taught, you know, wound, I mean, it wound up in the curriculum of our schools until about 20 years ago. I was raised in the Southern public schools. And if I was asked on a test to name the cause of the civil war and I put slavery, I would be marked wrong.
1: It was the war of Northern aggression.
0: Yeah. It was all those things that I don't say anymore. Like that phrase you just used. Mm-hmm. What we had was a civil war that was fought because rich landowners wanted to preserve their right to own human beings. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. And a whole lot of poor folks died in the war to preserve that right for them. And That's they a lost, fact. as they should have. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. Right? Afterwards, the United Daughters of the Confederacy couldn't live with the sense of defeat that the ones who made it home had and created a myth, a whole set of myths and actually succeeded in teaching at least four or five, maybe six generations of Southerners, those myths. And we grew up believing that several years ago when Dylan Roof killed those people at mother Emmanuel church in Charleston. Right? Uh-huh. Uh huh. Coates wrote a piece in The Atlantic. And I can't remember the headline of it, but I will never forget that in that piece, he quoted from several of the secession declarations of the Southern states, Confederate states. He did it because Dylan Roof wrote a manifesto that was just fully infused with this lost cause mythology. And, and the point he was trying to make is that if you look at the secession declaration, it's clear. You don't have to get up more than a paragraph deep, particularly in the, the first states to secede, to see that the right of states we were taught that they were defending was the right to enslave people. <laughs> and I was 52 – no, 54, man, when I first saw that. And it felt shocking. I went to public school. It felt really shocking. It 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 pissed me off. It was like teachers, why didn't you put this in front of me? Well, this
1: is going to sound crazy to you because I'm from the West Coast, but I don't know what the lost cause mythology is.
0: Well, see, that's (laughs) the thing. And for a person like you, coming in and making a place like this their home, uh, you know, one thing that we we've heard frequently from readers of the bitter. Southerner, from people like you, from adopted Southerners, Southerners by choice, as we call them. Man, you you know, your stories help me understand this place.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
0: like, you know, why some people do the things they do, you know, it's like there are no easy explanations for them. You have to kind of understand all that cultural baggage to see where it comes from. And I hope that our stories... Help people along those lines. I always hope so.
1: Well, you know, I've learned more about my own family after having moved to the South because my dad's from Southern Missouri, from Springfield. I was born in Springfield. The first mm-hmm. time I ever took my ex wife, who was a Californian, to visit Southern Missouri, we got off the plane and there was a huge sign that said, Welcome to the Ozarks. And she turned to me and said, they really call it the Ozarks? I thought that was a derogatory term. And I thought, man, there's a cultural wow uh, insight, right? Is that, um, you know, and, and, and that's true of all sorts of things that are Southern that are misunderstood. But uh, I had no idea that the Ozarks and people in the Ozarks really culturally are Southern, whether they say it or not, until I moved here and I realized, man, I grew up with these people. These are almost all my family from the Ozarks, you know, the ways of being the family life, the pride culture, the uh, the love of the land, the love of the outdoors, um, the love of America, you know, but but definitely with a a little bit of a, you know, animosity toward big government. Um, See,
0: that's a mountain person thing.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Like, See,
0: that's hill, that, hill, that, hill. that's common. That's that's common in Ozark, in the Ozarks, and in Appalachia. I grew up in Southern Appalachia, and you have to remember that in Appalachia, it's really three groups of people. It was the Scottish Highlanders who were so rowdy that. They got kicked out to Ireland, and then they all weren't being allowed to live like they wanted, and they moved to America. And so it's their descendants and the descendants of escaped slaves who make up the population of Appalachia. Mm -hmm. And these are people who, you know, I mean, everyone who was coming to America had a choice. Do I have the best chance of making a a new life for my family in an isolated place where – I have few other people, but command of the resources at hand, or do I move to a city where there are many resources, but I will be competing with thousands of others. And, and you know, like I do, man, folks are wired differently like that still today. Some folks want the quiet existence, some want a little more hubbub in their lives. And it's just those kinds of people. You know, and they've each got different stories because their people came from elsewhere. But you know, all of this makes me think. Like, do you have a computer in front of you or a tablet or something? I
1: don't. But um, whatever you tell me, I'll go look up right after this.
0: Okay. Well, all I want you to do is go to the Bitter Southerner, go to bittersoutherner.com, dot com, and look up a story called Ozark Life.
1: I already read it. Fantastic. Clearly, the Bitter Southerner believes the Ozarks are the South. <laughs>
0: They can't not be, dude. I agree. You know? I mean it's like <laughs> and you know, and the fact that they crawl up into Missouri, you know, if 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 that means Missouri's part of the South, I, we like I said, we don't care.
1: Well, I'll tell you, you know, I promise you the you the y'all line is south of Saint Louis because everybody in Southern oh, Missouri, it is. right? They think they're southern. Everybody who lives north of Saint Louis thinks they're from Chicago. So mm-hmm. it's a pretty you know, it's a it's a split state culturally.
0: One of my regular contributors is from the boot heel, the boot heel, uh, and he he lived in Atlanta for a long time and he's moved back up into one of the exurbs south of St. Louis. So occasionally, you know, we will send him out. He did a story for us. We actually had him drive all the way down to the very Southern end of Arkansas to do a piece about a town called El Dorado which was called uh, something like the cultural resurgence of Hell Dorado, because it, 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 it's, it's a little town that has always been dependent on the Murphy Oil Company, because that's where it's headquartered. And the town had kind of gone to nothing as the oil business changed. And so the Murphy family had put, like, millions of dollars into trying to turn it into turn El Dorado into a cultural destination, you know, so he does those kinds of things for us. And, you know, I was talking to Tony one time and he was like, yeah, where I live, it's like whether people consider themselves Southern kind of depends on whether they came down from St. Louis or up. Yeah. From somewhere farther South, you know, so it kind of doesn't matter, but you know, it's like I guess all we can do as a publication is to do stories that help people over time get a broader understanding of, of of what Southern culture consists of. Because a precise definition of what the region is and what it means to people is dependent on so many other factors that it becomes impossible. Well, and that's really
1: where the word bitter comes into this, right? It's more of like the forgottenness of the South that you want to. Well, Make known as well is that, is that fair
0: it's it's absolutely fair uh and if you want to know how we got to that,
1: uh I would love that story.
0: It's pretty simple in two thousand and eleven for Halloween week, we went to spend the week in New Orleans. This was about the time when the whole resurgence of the classic cocktail knowledgeable bartender thing was happening, and it had made it to Atlanta. So we spent a few nights in some nice bars where the bartenders knew what they were doing in New Orleans. And and I got home and the next week and I was at work and a thing popped into my Facebook feed about a list of the 50 best cocktail bars in the world. And the, the only reason I clicked on that story was because I thought, hey, maybe one of those places we went to in New Orleans last week will be on it. And then I clicked on it, and it was this magazine called Drinks International, which is like sort of a global bar business trade publication. And they put together this list of the 50 best cocktail bars in the world. And not only was there no bar in New Orleans on that list, there was no bar in the American South. And I was like, once again – Nobody thinks that we would have anybody sophisticated enough to pull something off like that. And I just experienced said sophistication last week. So I was like, I bet I could do a little blog about Southern bartenders. You know, nights and weekends, it'd be fun. So I went to my buddy Dave Whitling, who is now the creative director of The Bitter Southerner, uh, and one of the co-founders along with me. He's a designer, and I walked over to where the design folks sat in our office, and I said, hey, I got this idea for a little cocktail blog. Will you design it for me? And he said, sure. So we met uh, pretty soon thereafter at a coffee shop that we both were regulars at one Saturday and tried to figure out, okay, if we're going to do this, what do we name it? And because we worked at a firm that did, uh, design and editorial work for big corporations. You know, we have been through naming exercises countless times, and we're like, okay, it's a cocktail. And box. when you when in? you
1: say a firm, you're talking about Coca-Cola.
0: No, no, no. I'm talking no. about a firm no. called Unboundary, which is still in existence, and it's in Atlantic Station now. Um, okay. It was right behind the Coca-Cola building when Dave and I worked there. I'd left journalism in 1991, uh, and sort of got accidentally sucked into politics. Mm-hmm. Worked in politics for five years. Went to the Coca-Cola Company. Worked there for five years. Moved back to New York the second time. Was a senior VP at a big PR agency up there. And then my dad got sick, and I'm an I was an only child, and he he had multiple myeloma. Was diagnosed at age 82, and and 9-11 had happened the year before, about half a mile from our apartment in New York. And, uh, we, uh, we were not affected by it in terms of ash or anything only because of the way the wind was blowing that day. Uh, and then very soon after 9-11 happened, uh, I, I. A few months after that, I got a call from dad that he had been diagnosed with multiple myeloma and I we came home, me and my ex-wife. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so that's what got me home. And I did solo, let's see, for seven years from 2002 until 2009, I did like solo speech writing and, you know, employee communications consulting and corporate editorial consulting solo. And then I got tired of working by myself and joined this firm Unboundary that did the same kind of thing, but on a larger scale, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, I was having to put together virtual teams to do big projects, you know, uh, but you know, they were all in house and it gave me people to work with every day in a place where I could take my dog. So, you know, I, I did that and that's where I met Dave. So I asked Dave to, to do this, uh, blog for me and we met and we started talking about okay what ingredients go in cocktails and we're like okay uh fruit juices citrus spirits gin whiskey rye you know we went through all the spirits you know like the spirited southerner thought about the syrups the sweet southerner the sour southerner for the citrus you know and then we got to the bitters, and we were like the bitter Southerner, and we both just sort of looked at each other like, holy shit, we can't do that. But we all, because we all, you know, Dave grew up in a small town in Middle Georgia, in Sandersville, mm-hmm. and we we both all got this, you know, and we were like, that name is doing something bigger. <laughs> that that yeah. name is not a cocktail blog. You know, I agree with that. Uh, yeah, that name that name expresses what we feel about all the things that people do not understand about where we're from. And yeah, essentially, Ryan, it, it took Dave and I a year, and you know, and along the way, we brought in other people, including uh, you know, two other or two other co-founders, Kyle Tibbs, Jones, and 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 Butler Reigns. It took us a whole year to figure out what that name was telling us to do. We were doing. At the time, Dave and I were working on a big project and, you know, we were doing like a corporate magazine and we had been doing a corporate magazine for them and we were transitioning it to online because online, you know, big expansive designs, we're like, let's do those big feature stories. We always said that like, you know, nobody's going to understand the South by reading one story. They are going to understand the South by reading several stories over time. Nobody's going to understand the the South unless
1: they come Unless they come live here, Chuck, I promise you, like, I, you know, I've got friends all over the world and until they get here for any extended period of time,
0: this place is a mystery to them. Now, but they when they get here, our stories yeah. help them
1: a hundred percent, a hundred percent, right. But it's like studying a language that's from got far. It. Yeah. yeah. It, it makes mm-hmm. sense to me.
0: Yeah. It makes perfect yeah. sense. Yeah. And that's, me. that's what we're trying to do, you know, and that's always what we try to do and.
1: It's like think about like
0: reading Tolstoy, right? So when you read Tolstoy
1: when you're 20, you don't get it. Yeah. You read Tolstoy yeah. when you're 40, yeah. you realize how what a genius the guy is,
0: right? And you read yeah, Tolstoy yeah, you when read you you're read 70. It at 60, and you're like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm 59. I'm I'm like I totally get where you're coming from, man. Yeah. Like, you know our audience though is remarkable in its demographic spread. Thirty-five to fifty-five is the heart of it, as you might guess from what you just said. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it really runs the gamut, man. We seem to have become the place, and our audience is a community unlike any other publication's audience that I've ever seen or been a part of. They literally, in social media, call each other cousin, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's
1: like my all my all my family in the Southern Missouri. That's how they refer to all their neighbors. All my cousin down the street.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and that's, and that's it is that very thing, Ryan, that some of them decided to start calling each other that. And we've never really had to define the name for them. They define of course it for not. anyone who asks. We appear to have created the first community of Southerners who have as a primary common goal to put aside the Lost Cause mythology.
1: The thing that I've observed that I think is so fascinating is that there's a depth of soul in the South, right? The William Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor, Southern soul that exists oftentimes in the shadows because there's not a lot of opportunity in my experience thus far for depth of conversation because it's not a it's not a southern tradition. To be vulnerable, and what I love about the conversation that you're having and this conversation of Southern culture in the midst of uh, the global order is a a deep reverence combined with a deep humility that results in a lot of vulnerability about the good, bad and ugly of what it means to be Southern. It doesn't feel like it's, you know, there there's no like, um, I am Southerner, hear me roar. It's I am Southerner, listen to my voice, know my story, uh, know my history, know my psychology, know my sociology. And that is the the beauty of at least what I've been exposed to in The Bitter Southerner and what you guys are doing is that there's just depth to it and texture and beauty. Is that have you been a philosophical person most of your life it sounds like
0: I guess I have been more of a philosophical kind of person um you know I don't really have an, a, a lot of evidence to back that up with but yeah I mean I, I've always looked into that a lot of that in a way that goes back to my dad like I said I was an only child and and you know my dad was a huge influence on me and The little church we went to was part of our, you know, life every single week and usually two or three times, you know, and it was the same church. My dad was one of 12 and the church was about two throws of a half pound rock from the house where all those 12 kids were raised. It was like the family church and, uh, you know, but lots of other people from that part of Gilmer County came to it. My dad was a, you know, choir director. He taught singing schools in little churches all over North Georgia. And he paid attention to who wrote the songs. And, and, you know, I was like seven years old when 1968 came and there were riots in the streets and RFK being assassinated and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King being assassinated. And, you know, my dad, like, it used to be on Sunday mornings, you know, all the local stations in Atlanta carried different churches, you know, services. You could watch like four sermons before you went to church yourself if you wanted to. Uh, <laughs> and one of the preachers that Dad loved to uh, loved to listen to was the Reverend William Holmes Borders, who was at... Uh, Wheat Street Baptist Church which was one of the big 3 churches of the civil rights movement there in the Auburn Avenue neighborhood he could hear how Martin Luther King's teachings were in in line with the teachings of Jesus Christ and you know he he started in in that year he I, he started pointing out to me and okay this song we sing here just a little talk with Jesus that guy whose name is on it Cleveland Derrick's, you know, he was a black preacher from Chattanooga and, and like my dad kind of taught me, you know, and, and what's been interesting to me is that when you look into every piece of Southern culture, that has, whether it's art on a wall, music, the written word play film, I don't care anything that's ever stood the test of time with one very notable exception has been by the people who knew that the original premise of this whole region of the Confederacy was just wrong, just morally wrong. Flannery knew it, Faulkner <clears throat> knew it and wrestled with it. All those people have wrestled with it. And, In her own way, bless her heart, Margaret Mitchell tried to wrestle with it. And we got this movie, Gone with the Wind, which is what cemented the lost cause mythology firmly in the global collective memory through the 20th century. But when we got to a place where, you know, kids were growing up and they could go to Google and Google the term states rights and find out within 15 minutes what it actually meant. Suddenly there was a generation of people that were willing to look at this, and those younger people are making the older ones like me do it. You know, I did it anyway just because I'm built that way. But you keep finding all the similarities the more you dig into it that go completely across races and cultures. I mean, I I pulled up something here that I want to read to you. Uh, You know who Killer Mike is? No. The rapper? Okay. I don't school yourself son yeah. he's a very important person here in Atlanta he's got he's got a tv he's got a tv show that's called trigger warning and it's brilliant
1: anything that doesn't help black people needs to be burned the fuck down now you may know me as killer mike the greatest hindrance that black people have is white jesus balls to the wall put your nuts on the table We can show the rest of the world that there's a brand new way and a brand new day. I'm trying to introduce people to new thoughts and concepts.
0: He's also half of a rap duo called Run the Jewels, which has sold millions and millions and millions of records. And his partner in in that rap duo is a white guy from Brooklyn named LP. But before that, Mike had been a rapper. He'd actually won a Grammy back in the two thousands for an appearance on an outcast song, you know, it was part of that crowd. He's 40 something now. And, uh, he, uh, he, he was rapping about this stuff about being Southern. I had a friend who was his accountant, I think. <laughs> and when we started the bitter southerner, I was like, would you tell Mike about it and see if he would sit down with me for an interview? So our very first thing, which you can read if you go to the About page of our site, which was the thing I wrote that started the whole thing, she sent that to Killer Mike. And Mike read it evidently and loved it and was playing a show that weekend at the Old Masquerade on uh, North Avenue there. He said, I'll put as many as want to come on the guest list. So Dave and I went to the show with with my friend who, who knew Mike and damned if he didn't Say, bitter southerners in the house.
1: I love that <laughs> shit. I'm bitter too.
0: And he agreed to be interviewed. And he had opened a barber shop down in southwest Atlanta. So mothers who, you know, mothers were afraid to go to barber shops because a lot of the drug trade congregated around some of them. And they didn't feel like it was safe to take their kids. And so Mike was determined to build a barber shop where it was would be safe and welcoming. He now has three of them. There's actually one in uh, State Farm Arena <laughs> where you can get your hair cut and watch the Hawks play at the same time. I love it. Uh, love it. And I sat down with him at that first barbershop, and this was before Run the Jewels and before he had, like, the memes he has today. What I did was I talked to Mike about how, you know, we'll sit around all day and we'll listen to old Appalachian murder ballads, and we'll listen to Johnny Cash say he shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Never once think that Johnny Cash actually did that. But if you write about a black guy with a gun, they think it's you. And he was like, right, you know, and, and here's what he said to me. He said, it bothers me too. I feel sorry for my neighbors who may be a little afraid of me because you deny yourself such a valuable experience when you shut yourself out from other human beings. I mean, being a young black man in the South can be a difficult and arduous task at times, but at some point after you get past the anger and some of the confusion of adolescence and you grow up and travel the world, the people who are stereotypically supposed to hate me or the people I'm supposed to mistrust have always been my neighbors. And for most of my life, we've been really nice to each other. That's my honest experience with whites in the South. And I think a lot of times when people say Southerner, or make those crash jokes. I, as the black guy, am supposed to excuse myself from the joke. We're all, but we're all Southerners. We all talk with these drawls and twangs. We all go to the racetrack on Sunday. We all go fishing. I don't have a Dixie flag on the back of my pickup because y'all lost, but it still has mud flaps and big tires. <laughs>
1: Well, that is that is the truth of the South.
0: That really is the truth of the South. If you look at the music, man, look at the soul music that came out of Memphis, and Muscle Shoals, Macon, other little places around the South, you know, Atlanta, Charlotte, Western North Carolina. Like, I mean, go back to the very Carter family. If you watch the Ken Burns documentary about country music, you know. A.P. Carter's main song-catching partner was a black man. And, like, you know, they were just grabbing songs, whatever songs people sang, because that's the way stuff got passed around. And all of our beautiful music from the South, and arguably every great thing that's ever happened in American music came from here. And I'll kind of fight anybody who says otherwise, uh, (laughs) because I can can trace the, the route, of the Beach Boys all the way back to the south if you want me to.
1: Listen, I believe you
0: and I know that if uh and if I don't listen <laughs> you'll punch
1: me punch me in the nose like a good southerner. Nah,
0: good, I good won't. I I fan. won't. I'm I'm <laughs> I am not a violent man and never have been. I won't punch you in the nose, but I, I might I might come up with a good verbal shot for you or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Fair enough. Uh, Fair enough.
1: Uh, Chuck we're out of time. The last thing I'd ask is uh, a couple things. One, share with everybody uh, how they could reach you on social media if you have any of those those uh, pieces. And maybe share one little well, uh, thought, something you'd love for people who are non-Southerners to really imbibe about the South.
0: If you've never heard of this thing called Bitter Southerner, I have a few suggestions for you. I would ask you to, if you want to just start reading and dive right in, you can do that at bittersoutherner.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we are Bitter South. On Instagram, we are Bitter Southerner. And of course, we have a Bitter Southerner Facebook page, and you can engage with us in all of those places there. In terms of one last thing to say, Ryan, I guess I'll just say this. If you're from the South, or not from the South, and are trying to figure this out because it's so puzzling, keep reading us and we will further complicate your understanding <laughs>
1: <laughs> the South is a complicated place, I love it. Chuck, thank you for joining us today, it's been a, a real
0: pleasure. It's been a pleasure to my new friend who is highly dependent upon the film business I wish us a, a safe and speedy turnaround. Yeah, indeed, indeed I think
1: it will be fast once we can start working. Alright, Chuck, have a great day stay safe out there I'll leave you guys with thoughts, which are reflections that I write on Instagram. None of us are allowed to value the suffering of others. We're only allowed to value our own suffering. This has been the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'm Ryan Millsap, chairman and CEO. Thanks for listening.
0: listening To the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at, at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.milsap.